Welcome, and thank you for joining us on our very first podcast episode, DNMs, where we talk all things law and all things tech. My name's Michaela, and I'm here today with a friend, peer, and fellow law student, Daniel Hoffman. As second-year law students and soon-to-be graduates, provided everything goes well, and faced with Daniel's very concerning look of worry right now, we both have many questions about the emerging face of digital media, of advancing and ever-expanding technology, and of course, its subsequent impact on both our personal and on our professional futures. Despite us both growing up in what you would call the digital age, witnessing the rapid adoption of smartphones and accessible technology, we are still witnessing significant changes as we enter our 20s. Also, a very quick and sincere happy birthday to Michaela. Thank you, Daniel. With particularly novel advancements in things like cryptocurrency and blockchain, quantum computing and nuclear power, artificial intelligence, and many other mind-blowing concepts that have never been dreamed of before, the legal questions are ever-changing and nowhere near being answered. Join us today to discuss concepts of a participatory culture, advancing super-connectedness, new blockchain technology, the digital hype, and ultimately, how innovation is affecting the professional legal sphere of human experience. Let's start by considering one of the greatest consequences of both the creation and the expansion of the internet, a participatory culture. Through the establishment of internet services, individuals have been able to participate in online affairs in a way that they weren't able to before. Think posting photos, sharing videos, music streaming, commenting on items, or even something as simple as memes. Users exchange information and establish what is known as a participatory culture. We've expanded into a world where individuals are not only acting as consumers, but are now also producers. They can take part in both the creation and the consumption of products. While once certain information was exclusive, the establishment of this online and universal platform essentially means now anyone can be a professional. With the interactivity that that digital age brings, there is control by the audience over journalism as well. Now, of course, we have to highlight the wealth of benefits of this society, where everyone's voice is heard and gets to contribute to new content, decision-making shared, and social connection is ultimately promoted. But what about the consequences on professionalism? This sharing economy, essentially, raises concerns of both quality, content, and of credibility. Can a world where anyone can produce and consume knowledge be problematic? With the creation of WebMD in the late 90s, we saw an uptake in patients self-diagnosing, where clients would go to a GP and tell the doctor what they had, as opposed to just listing symptoms and getting a prescription. It is evident now in the legal industry with increased access to online services and legal forums, a quick Google search can convince you that you're off the hook, when in actuality, the nuances of a specific defense don't apply to you. This has had a direct negative effect on the efficacy of the legal industry as clients expect a specific outcome from their solicitor and are disappointed when it isn't realistic. That is very true. Personally, as someone pursuing journalism's place in the law, there is also an inherent growth in fake news, where the line between fact and fiction is essentially blurred. 
This presents a whole plethora of legal issues. Journalists are no longer interested in reporting on the truth, but rather what will be supported by their audience. With the freedom of interaction that the public has with news outlets, predominantly on Twitter, audiences are able to control what news is woke. Cancel culture has become such an important aspect in whether a journalist will keep their job that reporters are more likely to have this inappropriate bias towards their audience rather than actually reporting objectively on these real-world issues. I mean, another digital age advancement that has brought about legal concerns is the implementation and tracking of digital footprints. Initially, the benefits were advantageous, including personalization of ads, ease of fraud detection, and tailored incentive programs. Companies knew how you acted and what you wanted. However, the exploitation of digital footprints by large companies, such as Facebook and Google, has impacted the privacy and sense of security of users. This has manifested through companies taking advantage of targeted marketing of opportune consumers, whether it be for capitalist, political, or evil gains. The predominant example of this is the 2016 presidential election, where companies were found to have manipulated voters through extensive targeted Facebook campaigns. Although completely legal, it raises ethical and democratic concerns. The concern of being tracked by companies has promoted innovation in anonymity on the web. A pinnacle example of this would be the creation of the Tor network in the early 2000s. Can you tell me a little bit more about what the Tor network actually is? Yeah, of course I can. So normally the internet works as a centralized server that can send and receive information from a person's computer. It keeps track and logs every user's connection and what they do during their connection. Tor browser connects everyone's computer on the Tor network, so then there is no centralized server. Every computer makes up a little part of the server, so connections are bounced around and nothing can be traced or tracked. Companies can't tell what you're doing and neither can the government. That's super interesting. And so I'd say that that decentralization of data led to this recent uptake in what you'd call the blockchain network. For internet users, not only can their data be protected from unwanted eyes, but so too can their purchases. This untaxable, untraceable, and completely anonymous system, however, does have its legal repercussions and creates an entirely new legal field for us to explore. I mean, although it's difficult to regulate, Australia has somewhat been successful in limiting the anonymity of cryptocurrency. It's treated akin to buying stocks where a purchaser must provide identification and is recorded as a financial transaction against their name. So this kind of assists in uh, solving financial crimes such as money laundering. However, it doesn't really solve the larger issue of purchasing illicit goods or services. I'd say another emerging field of technology in addition to that is artificial intelligence, essentially the ability of machines to learn and act intelligently. This new concept obviously poses many ethical and legislative challenges. Many AI inventions cut down on the man hours required to perform a specific task. They enable greater connection with clients and open new possibilities for risk analysis when pursuing a particular element or defense in a case. Of course, there are downsides to any great invention though. The obvious question here, which everyone usually jumps to, is who's responsible when a self-driving car crashes and kills a pedestrian? Is the driver to blame 
or is it the programmer? If a research assistant were to give the wrong advice to a solicitor, who then advises his client, who's to blame? Well, traditionally in that situation, the legal research assistant would be held responsible by the firm, right? Probably, yeah. But comparatively, who would you bring a case against if it was a supercomputer analysis program, not a research assistant, who gives the wrong advice to a solicitor? That brings to mind something I read on your blog post. So for those of you that don't know, Michaela is our in-house blog writer. She writes on Nature and Agency. And I'm pretty sure that you spoke about IBM developing a, um, it was a talent acquisition program that was then adopted by some law company to make a fully autonomous attorney. I think that was about right. Can you tell me a bit more about that? Yes, Daniel, that's right. And thank you for the free plug there. Um, but that's exactly what happened. Uh, AI Ross Intelligence launched uh, an AI-based legal research platform in about 2015, and it broke news and was in headlines as the world's first artificially intelligent attorney. So it can read and it can understand, can generate hypotheses with references, and can also even learn from humans when interacted with. You could ask it a question in plain English, and the computer would then scan a body of law and return an answer even citing legislation, case law, and secondary sources. So why is this not being used everywhere? I mean, I'm a second year law student and the only time that I've heard about it was in your blog post. Look, the program has been implemented and adopted in a few law firms across Australia, but the reason we haven't heard about it is because it's such a new area of law. And it really just goes to show the uncertainty of the legal industry surrounding artificial intelligence and all the challenges currently posed. I guess a benefit that we can take away from this increasing superconnectedness then is never before seen accessibility by all corners of the globe. Yes, there is still a digital divide. However, I think that that has transitioned from a lack of access to a lack of education on how to use this infinite knowledge. What I personally feel is the original digital divide was when access to the internet was limited to professionals in fields such as medicine or science, or to those in first world countries prior to the globalization of the mobile internet access. The new digital divide stems from the general public having access to any information imaginable, but not having the education to sort through it and find out what is relevant. I'd say that ties into the gap theory, whereby the diffusion of information communication technologies, or ICTs, have established groups, or two groups, of the information rich and then the information poor, where one is more educated than the other, given their respective socio-economic status. With 35% of the world offline, they're disadvantaged by both inequality in access and in knowledge, as you pointed out, Daniel. Going forward as legal professionals, it's going to be important for us to remember that our value is in being able to pinpoint what can make or break a case and adopting digital advancements to promote access to legal representation. It will no longer be the access to information, it'll be the ability to use it. What also encourages access to legal representation for all people is the idea of remote connectedness and collective intelligence. From a consumer perspective, the idea of an online network connection is enticing. I mean, financially, offering remote legal services means no transport costs for the client and no parking fees or whatnot. 
Given the growth of at-home employment, such services also provide a convenient alternative to clients. I'd say for professionals as well, a transition to remote interconnectedness promotes the greater ability in relation to seeing more clients in a day. Online services eliminate the need to wait for a client and removes the formalities of an in-person sit-down. In combination, this increases efficacy of meetings and ultimately allows more clients to be seen. Simultaneously, greater access to legal services. I mean, within the professional industry itself, online interconnectedness encourages a greater workflow between colleagues. There's now the ability to collaborate and collate intelligence, you know, edit and review content all simultaneously with cohesion. This removes the often lengthy process of exchanging and proofreading work, where you're having to email back and forth drafts. Ultimately, this improves efficiency. This is not only applicable in the legal field, but almost in all facets of everyday life. I'd say what's interesting as well is that programs such as Zoom or Teams, Collaborate and Google Docs, which we're all quite familiar with, have existed for many years now, but they were really only used in niche fields. Take videography and content creation, for example. However, in light of the recent pandemic, the rate at which mainstream industries have begun adopting these online collaborative platforms have really rapidly accelerated. The utilisation of these services by schools, universities and a large majority of workplaces has revolutionised the entire way that we perceive work. I mean, even in the past two years, just here in Australia, our experience with online university and remote learning means we are well versed with how to manage online workloads and how to harness its potential. Going forward, it's imperative that we transfer these skills that we've learned into our professional development to remain relevant and adaptive, something that don't fall behind with the times. Although this transition to a digitalized world has a vast array of benefits, I think it's important to note that the more dependent we become, the more vulnerable we are. I mean, the irony of it is where our independence on the internet is increasing, the consequences of its misuse are increasing as well. Well, consider how significantly our worlds can be disrupted when services that we rely on in an everyday environment are taken away. Prior to the digital age and this reliance on the internet, it was extremely limited in the way that we could be so disrupted in our day-to-day activities. I mean, one example I can think of is power outages, uh, disrupting the way we get to school and to work. But nowadays, our working lives, our personal lives and our social lives can all grind to a halt so suddenly in the advent of a nerd in his basement. I mean, hacking is an ever-growing concern in the digital age. There are endless ways that cyber criminals can infiltrate our lives and the more that we transition online, the more they can access. From social media accounts to banking to emails, unauthorised computer access poses a risk to every single person who is online, which it's beginning to become the entire population. Initially, in the early days of the internet, hacks took place as what is known as a computer worm virus, where one computer on a network, say at work or at school, it was infiltrated and then the virus could spread to all the other computers on that network, shutting them down and demanding payment from the users. Nowadays, the risk is invisible. I mean, hackers are taking inside information from companies, confidential documents from countries, or accessing your bank account without fraud alerts even being triggered. 
Exactly. And not only does hacking bring up new areas of law for prosecutors, it also brings up new questions in legislation, especially when dealing with white hat and backhacking. Backhacking occurs where a company or an individual takes an action against an attacker in either a defensive or a retaliatory manner. This is a new form of vigilantism as these groups don't have authority to retaliate and a self-defense argument wouldn't even hold up. I mean, white hat hacking as well. That's an ethical question where the government employs hackers to hack into other countries or into a terrorist cell or anything like that. Really, internet users are becoming vulnerable in so many aspects. Consider breaches in privacy, for example. Raising concerns regarding the internet's ability to access and to monitor one's internet data so as to prevent uh, terrorist activity or a threat to national security and the good of the public. But when does this begin to encroach upon the individual's right to privacy? Should eavesdropping on data of members of the public, such as ourselves, be treated the same as eavesdropping on something we say at the dinner table? I mean, that brings to mind concerns regarding the use of users' intellectual property and digital property as well. I mean, over the past few months, we have seen the rise in the use of NFTs, non-fungible tokens. An NFT is essentially a piece of digital content which is connected to the blockchain. So you have a piece of artwork that's digital and just like cryptocurrency, it's secure and only one person can own the original copy. So what would stop me from screenshotting it though? I mean, yeah, you could screenshot it, but that would be similar to taking a photo of the Mona Lisa at the Louvre. You have the photo on your phone, but you don't actually own it. So you want to be the authentic owner but, of the original piece. But what's the point? I mean, I can't afford the Mona Lisa, and if I've got a photo, isn't that as good as anything? I Yeah, there's some utility to owning the original, though. So there's a company called Bored Ape, for example, and they've uh, shot to popularity at the moment, where they host parties for people who are some of the most exclusive celebrities on the globe. If you own one of their Bored Ape NFTs, you get a free pass to those events as long as you're the owner. So this is opening up a new world of digital identity because it can be verified that you are the owner of the authentic piece. I guess the legal challenge, though, is that you don't actually have to break into the museum to steal a piece of art. You can just do it from the shadow of your basement. Yeah, exactly. You don't even have to leave the house and you can commit art theft of something that's worth hundreds of millions of dollars. I think, I mean, really one of the greatest challenges with this emerging technology and the overlap with law is that so many of the problems are invisible and people can do it without even having to go anywhere. And so tracing it, uh, detecting it and then prosecuting is so difficult. I feel like we've covered a lot of topics today and we haven't really given our listeners any answers. Probably because we don't have them. I mean, that's fair enough, right? We're law students and we're navigating this world as it comes at us and it's constantly changing. Exactly, but I feel like what we have covered is the changing legal industry from the perspective of the client, professionals and in terms of legal ramifications of technology. It's important to remember that this world is ever-changing with the ways that technology is advancing so quickly. Um, it's almost exponential and if we don't 
keep up and we don't keep talking about the legal ramifications, then all of a sudden the legal industry is going to be completely different and we won't know where we fit in. Exactly. And that's the only way really that we're going to come up with solutions to these problems is staying on top of it and considering alternatives and adapting as professionals. So, guys, uh, thank you very much for listening to this very first episode of DNMs with myself, Daniel, and Michaela. We can't wait to welcome you back for a second episode soon on uh, new ideas about digital media and the legal industry. Thank you very much. Thank you. Bye.